to start with, I've got a bit of a fun question for you today to discuss with someone close by. Now, uh, I've got strict rules for this question. This question must be answered with no Googling. Okay? Uh, that's a serious command. No Google Googling with this question because Google will tell you the answer. Uh, so don't do it. Okay? So as we start today, I want you to turn to someone who's close by, uh, someone near you, and ask this question. Of all the commands in the Bible, which one do you think comes up the most? Of all the commands in the Bible, which one do you think comes up the most? Just 30 seconds each, over to you. No Googling. What are some guesses? We'll stop there. Anyone, anyone want to uh, th think that they know what it might be? Who hasn't Googled? Anyone want to shout out one? No one wants to be wrong. That's fair. Go. Don't have any idols above God? Yep. Good guess. Love one another? Love your neighbor? Think it's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These, these, are, these are good guesses. Any others? Final takers? Well... If you are wanting to answer to that question, it is going to be revealed in just a few minutes. <laughs> I'm going to reveal it. Hang in there. Not quite yet. <clears throat> so, this is the last in our Ripple Effect sermon series on evangelism. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we've, we've spent the last nine weeks discussing all the reasons why we need to be telling people about Jesus. Uh, we've been reminded to pray for people who, have, um, who we're talking to. And to actually pray for them to come to know Jesus, uh, to have our stories ready, have our testimonies ready to share about Jesus. We looked at um, the five-part gospel story of creation, fall, redemption, recreation, and transformation. Last week, we looked at um, the need for us to have deeper relationships with non-Christians. And I wonder, as we've gone through the series, if you've noticed what's missing. It may seem like we've covered all of the things that need to be covered, but I actually think there's a huge elephant in the room that we haven't quite addressed. Here's what I think it is. Our culture doesn't like Jesus. I don't say that as a pessimistic person, and it actually pains me to admit that, I think. Uh, but the truth is, being a Christian in Australia is not as safe as it used to be. Uh, not only can you be mocked or jeered or ostracized, that means excluded for your faith, even our governments and government leaders have openly stated that Christians are backwards and that things we believe are no longer acceptable beliefs in society today. Uh, there's a book that came out in 2021, which is one of the best books you'll ever read, so I can highly recommend it. It's called Being the Bad Guys how to live for Jesus in a world that says you shouldn't. Uh, the author is Steve McAlpine, who's a guy from Perth, and he really nails what's happening to Christians in culture in Australia on the head. I'm going to read a bit of his opening chapter. It's quite lengthy, um, really easy to listen to. Have a listen to this. In the eyes of much uh, Western society, Christianity is the bad guy or at least is fast becoming so. Christianity is the problem, and it's happened so quickly that it's taken us by surprise. Only a few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy, the solution to what was bad. 
Rather than being on the wrong side of the law, we were the law. Christian morality was assumed and passed mainly unchallenged. The cultural, legal and political power structures affirmed Christians. Then something changed. Over the course of the 20th century, we became just one of the guys. One option among many. A voice to be considered but not to be followed unquestioningly. If Christianity worked for you, fine. If it didn't work for me, also fine. He continues. But the problem is that that's not where we are now. The tide has shifted further. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option. It's a problem. The cultural, political and legal guns that Christianity once held are now trained on us. And it's happened quickly. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me get some water. He's got more to say. <laughs> he continues. The number of those professing faith has fallen dramatically. The number of those who reject the faith they held until their late teens has risen dramatically. The seat at the cultural table that we assumed was ours for keeps is increasingly being given to others. We're on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of so many issues and conversations. If this were a Western, we would be the guys wearing the black hats whose appearance is accompanied by the foreboding soundtrack. It's come as a surprise. We're not sure how it happened. We don't like it. We don't feel like we deserve it. But we are the bad guys now. Our culture doesn't like Jesus. Christians aren't just one of the guys anymore, he said. We're just the bad guys. And with all that in mind, we come to this text from 1 Peter 3, which gives us great news. Why is it great? Because the main point of the passage we have today is exactly what we need to hear. The main point can be found at the end of verse 14, where the Apostle Peter says, Have no fear of them nor be troubled. At the start of our time together, I asked, of all the commands in the Bible, which one do you think comes up the most? You know what it is? Don't be afraid. That's the most uh, general command that we find in the whole Bible. Don't be afraid. Isn't that interesting? What's more interesting is it's what the command not to be afraid suggests because it suggests that we are afraid. I mean, Christians aren't the only ones who are afraid, though. Like, our, our world is afraid. We are a culture that is completely wrapped up in fear. Fear sells. Fear grabs our attention and keeps it. Like, really think about this. We're afraid of lots of things. Over the last three years, what's the number one fear that we've been told to be afraid of? COVID. Uh, some of us aren't afraid of COVID, but we're afraid of the vaccine. Some of us aren't afraid of any of that. We're just afraid of dying. Many of us are afraid of death. Some of us have fear of other people's point of view. We do. Some of us fear agenda push. Uh, some of us fear the woke agenda. Some of us fear conservatism. Perhaps we fear other religions. Uh, we have phobias as well. We've got snakes and spiders. Uh, deep water is my phobia. Some of us worry about things that are actually irrational. 
Some of us fear getting up in the morning. And then you can have personal fear. Fear of losing your kids. Uh, fear of them being hurt. Fear of them not following Jesus. Fear, fear of losing someone you love. Uh, fear, fear of someone you love drifting away. Fear of rejection. Fear of being mocked. Fear of being ridiculed. Uh, fear of losing the respect. Fear of losing your reputation. Fear of losing your job. Fear of sharing your faith. And it's so easy for us as Christians to get caught up in this culture of fear. And this is why we need to hear verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. See, the background is really important for this text. Uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, is writing this letter uh, to Christians, to, to several churches in the area who were being persecuted for their faith. But it wasn't just for their faith. It was because they were doing good things. They're good works that they were being persecuted for. And Peter writes and says to them, don't be afraid. So we're going to unpack the reasons that Peter gives for why Christians, why you and I should not fear sharing our faith to the world, uh, why we should not fear doing good works in Jesus' name. And there are four wonderful and joyful realities that are going to help us to understand why we shouldn't fear. Here's the first. <clears throat> we shouldn't fear sharing our faith to the world because the world cannot harm you. Look at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, I know what you're thinking immediately. Uh, Reese. I can be hurt. <laughs> uh, I can be harmed. The world can hurt me. People have died for their faith in Jesus. People are mocked and jeered uh, and ridiculed for having a faith in Jesus. And my answer would be, yes, I hear you. But remember who's who Peter is writing to. He's writing to Christians who are suffering for being good Christians, who are suffering for doing good things, who are suffering for opening their mouths to say, I believe in Jesus. Uh, and so he knows about the suffering, but he says, the world can't harm you if you're zealous. That, another word for enthusiastic, for what is good. But in order to get a clearer picture of what's happening in verse 13, we have to go back just one verse. So if you're following along in the Blue Bibles, just turn back one page, page 1015. I'm going to read verse 12. I think this is the key to understanding verse 13. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What is that saying? It's saying that God sees the righteous person, the, the one who is living the way that they ought to live, the one who's living out the gospel, the one who's telling others about the gospel. The Lord's eyes are on you. He favours that person. He favours you. He listens to you. And then the opposite of that verse is that he's against those who are against you. So when you get to verse 13 and read, who is there to harm you? Peter's not saying that nothing bad won't happen to you in this life, but he is saying that God's watching. His eyes are on you and he is for you and there is a future promise for you. It's a future promise that you will not have opposition against you on the last day. 
on that final day when God comes to judge the world, no opposition will be able to stand against you because you are for Jesus. You're for God. You are sharing the gospel. Because if God's eyes are on you, how can anyone do any harm to you? He is watching over you. Who can take away your place in heaven? No one. Why does he mention this? Because of fear. Perhaps the greatest threat to being zealous and enthusiastic for what is good is fear. Fear of loss. It's a church being persecuted. Fear of loss. Fear of losing. Losing loved ones, family members, friends. Uh, for us, fear of losing our, our partners, our boyfriend or girlfriends. You know, or if you're married a non-Christian, fear of losing them because they think you are just too enthusiastic for me. I don't want to hear about Jesus anymore. I just want to stop, stop the charade, please. Can we just live in the real world? Give up church, give up Jesus and be with me. This is precisely why Peter is saying what he's saying. He's preparing Christians. He's preparing us for, for, for people who are already suffering and living in the real world to keep going, to keep going in the suffering because the Lord's eyes are on them because they have a certain blessing of future inheritance coming uh, and that there is nothing that anyone could do to take that away. They've got nothing to fear. So we should not fear because the world cannot harm us. Second, we should not fear sharing the gospel because through suffering we're blessed. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. This is a really interesting point about suffering, um, but we, we need to put it in the right context because this is not just about any kind of suffering, is it? It's got, a, it's got an asterisk here. This is suffering for your faith. And what Peter is saying is that blessing comes for suffering for your faith, for, for speaking about Jesus, for doing good works in Jesus' name. And this means that sharing your faith and suffering, um, it, it isn't evidence that we're doing the wrong thing. But the right thing, it's interesting. God hasn't left you or abandoned you if you're suffering for speaking about Jesus. But instead, he's using suffering in a way that it provides blessing. This is what Peter is writing to churches, remember, to groups of people that are already suffering, being slandered and mocked because they're following Jesus. The beginning of verse 14 that we're, that we're looking at here about suffering for righteousness' sake, it echoes the Sermon on the Mount. It echoes Jesus' words in Matthew 5 uh, when Jesus is, is, is giving this famous sermon. So have a look at what Jesus says here and look for the similarities between the start of verse 14 and Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12. I'm going to read these. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How can we be blessed when we suffer? How can Jesus say we can be blessed when others revile us and persecute us and other all kinds of evil against us on his behalf? And the answer is because God's at work in the suffering. Because his favour is on you. 
because he sees you. His eye is on you. He sees you standing in the moment of trial. And Matthew 5.12 says, your reward is great in that moment for sticking up for Jesus' name. When someone is seeking to make fun of you or mock you or slander you or hurt you because of your faith in Jesus, see it as a blessing, Peter says. Have no fear of them. Here's the third point. We shouldn't fear because they are not the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. This comes from verse 15. Have a look. But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Take notice that verse 15 is the positive command of the, the negative command not to fear. So don't fear being the negative command. Uh, the other side is, positively, honour Christ as holy. Um, I actually don't think that our translation uh, gets the word holy quite right here. I think other translations do better because the original language uses the word holy as a verb. I, I don't know if you know what a verb is. That's a doing word, an action word. Uh, but you don't see it as a doing word here. It's kind of more on the side. You know, you honour Christ as holy. But it's a doing word. It's holy. It's holy. Uh, it's something we're meant to do in our hearts. We're supposed to make holy God in our hearts. So, so what we're told to do is to, to do that, make Jesus holy in our hearts, to make him the most central part of our lives. So it's not just thinking, oh, you know, Jesus holy. It's like, actually, I need to let Jesus be holy in my heart. Can you see the difference? It's quite different. I need to set Jesus apart in my heart as far more superior than any thought, word or deed or feeling that I have otherwise. And so, again, think about the context. Suffering Christians who are being persecuted for their faith, for their good works, for their belief about sharing about Jesus, Peter is saying, don't let up. Keep letting Jesus be holy in your heart. Don't, don't buckle because of how you feel in the moment. Don't buckle because of how you're being treated. Don't budge, but instead keep going deeper. Keep letting Jesus be the, the, uh, the holiness in your heart. And the, the obvious question that we need to ask ourselves then is, is he? Is, is Jesus the number one in your heart? Is he, is he holy in your life? Is he the Lord in your heart? Do you treat him with more value and worth than anything else? Do, do you give him your time and devotion and trust more than any, anything or anyone else? Is Jesus the Lord of your heart? The second part uh, of verse 15 says, then always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Now, um, don't hear me wrongly here. It is true that we need to be prepared to give an answer at any moment to any person for the hope that we have in Jesus. Our faith in Jesus is not blind. We actually do need to have answers ready for that. Uh, and so if you aren't sure what you'd say if someone came up to you and said, why are you a Christian? Then you probably need to figure that out, what you would say. But this verse isn't saying what many of us have probably heard before. It's not saying uh, what... Uh, many evangelism courses would say that this verse means. It's not saying that we need to take classes in evangelism to be prepared to give an answer. Uh, it's, it's not saying we need to, to all go to Bible college 
to get this answer um, to, to share with non-believers. Uh, it, it's not saying that we need to be perfect at knowing how to actually answer every person um, with excellence. It's not saying that we need to have our testimonies written down so that we know what we're going to say if someone asks us. Because we have to think about the context. Peter has just been talking about how the Christians he is writing to are not afraid of people persecuting them. So Peter's not saying to them, you know what, you need to go and write your testimony down. You know what, you guys need to go as a church, go and do some Bible college while you're being persecuted as Christians so that you can be ready to give an answer. He's not saying that, is he? He's saying they need not be afraid of suffering, but in the moment of suffering, when the people who are hurting you and the people who are looking on, who are seeing you being mocked and reviled, when they see it, they're going to think, why are they letting this happen? Why is that person just taking it? And it's in that moment that Peter says, then you need to be ready to give an answer. You see the difference? It's about having Jesus as Lord in your heart so, so, so that you are emotionally ready to give an answer for why you're suffering. It's about being emotionally ready to answer the, the person who asks you, you know what, why are you putting up with this? Why don't you just give up? Why don't you just give up on Jesus? I don't want to see you suffer anymore. And he's saying, be ready then. Be ready to proclaim the hope of the gospel in Jesus that's in your heart. So he's not, he's not writing to persecuted Christians telling them they need to study. Uh, they're being mocked. They're being maligned. They're being insulted. They're being excluded. And they're the good guys. They're the ones doing good works. And so he says, be ready to respond when people ask you why. Why, why you're taking on the suffering. Be ready in that moment to tell them about your hope in Jesus. This, this command is for Christians who need to be ready to say, you know, in the face of everything I'm going through, I'm ready to bless someone who hurts me. That, that's just what happens a couple of verses before, Peter says, instead of hurt, bless. How is this possible? It's only possible if you know Jesus. Because Jesus saved me. Because once I was Jesus' enemy. Because once I rebelled against him, I, I was the one who wasn't interested in Jesus. I was against him. I was his enemy. And at the same time, Jesus loved me at my worst. But he didn't do evil against me and said, he blessed me. He offered me hope that I could never get myself. And so now when others hurt me, when others aren't interested in me, when others mock me and are against me and are my enemies, I will love them. Because Jesus loved me at my worst. I will bless them. Because I have an inheritance in heaven to look forward to. So I can, I can keep doing this. I can endure this. Who can harm me, verse 13 says, if I am zealous for what is good? If I've been loved by Jesus when I was unlovable, then I can love in the same way. And when they ask me why, I'm ready. That's what, that's what Peter's saying. So what is it that hinders you from talking about Jesus? What hinders you from speaking to others? What, what stops you about sharing your joy 
What stops you about being real and genuine and honest about your faith and the hope that you have that is found in Christ alone? What stops you? It's fear, isn't it? We need not be afraid. Our culture makes us feel like people are big and Jesus is small. I think that's the truth. And and I feel this. I really feel this and I'm preaching to my own heart here as well as you guys. But we all need to realign this. We need to realign our hearts. We need to reorder the loves in our hearts so that Jesus is big and that people are small. We need to reorder the loves in our hearts so that Jesus is put in his rightful place, being holy in our hearts as Lord. And we need to do so, the end of verse 15 says, with gentleness and respect. Uh, we need to do it responding with love and kindness. And, and I think this is countercultural for Christians. Um, if you just go onto YouTube and you search for Christians having arguments with others, like it's apparent that many of our Christian circles have got this wrong. Like, you'll see this. Like, we love the language of, watch this Christian evangelist destroy this atheist argument. Like, that's what the the YouTube videos are called. Or, watch this person destroy the other guy. Or, or watch this argument be trashed or something. Watch this debate where um, where a Christian tears, you know, a Muslim apart or something. Like, it's all there. We need to give the reasons for the hope we have with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. Here's the last point. We should not fear because they will be put to shame. That's in verse 16. Uh, I'll, I'll read it. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Here's what, here's what Peter's point is. It's actually a shameful thing to mock someone who's doing the right thing. And Christians are obeying their creator. They're doing the right thing. And they're the ones being told that what they're doing is wrong and shameful. But it's not on us to shame them. Did you say that? In verse, uh, in verse 16. It's, it's still on us to bless them. Because on judgment day, God will take care of this. There will be no question that what they're doing to you is shameful. Um, just by show of hands, has anyone in here ever played a game called Mafia? Yeah, half the room, half the room. Okay. Uh, if you haven't, you should. It's a lot of fun. It's usually played at youth groups. Um, the idea is that there's a bunch of people playing together. You kind of need a crowd, you know, at least 10 people probably. Um, a bunch of people playing together who have different roles. No one's allowed to reveal what they are. So we've all got different jobs. And three or four people playing the game are like, they're called mafia. So, that, so if you're a mafia, your job is to try and kill everyone else without them knowing who you are. And then you win the game. If you're not mafia, your job is to eliminate as many mafia as possible, even though you don't know who they are. So it's a really tough thing to do. No one's allowed to reveal their identity. Everyone's playing the game. Everyone thinks everyone's on the same team, but not everyone's on the same team. Now, I might be wrong, but I tend to think that I'm a pretty good read on people, except when it comes to mafia. I cannot get a read on my wife. I cannot get a read on Elise, and I've played so many games with Elise, she can convince me that we are on the same team when we are not on the same team. 
A few times she's got me good, and I think I'm working with an ally, and I'm working with the enemy. Uh, and I've convinced others. No, 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 Elise is definitely on our side. Not true. Quite a few times she's got me. There was one time she really convinced me that we were working together, and at the end of the game, I found out I was wrong. And, and when you're wrong, and you kind of stake your, stake your reputation on this, so you're like, I'm married to her. Like, I, I know, you've got to trust me. When you're wrong, it feels pretty shameful. Like, you, you feel it. You kind of just, all right, I was wrong. I'm not going to speak for another two hours. I think Peter in verse 16 is describing the righteous this way. Because when Jesus one day returns on Judgment Day and God will be revealed to every person, his people, you and I, will finally be revealed as right and all those who mocked us and ridiculed us will be shamed. They'll be shamed because they bought the lie of the world, the lie the world sold them. Hey, these guys are doing what's wrong. Yep, okay, I'll be allies with them. They must be right. And they mocked us for doing right, and they will be put to shame one day. Here's the last observation I want to make. We might think, particularly in our Western culture, that it is crazy to think about or do any of this to suffer and be persecuted for speaking up about Jesus when it's easier not to say anything, uh, to not worry about what they can do to us in this life, to just push through the suffering and persecution because we'll be blessed, to, to remind ourselves that Jesus is Lord, not the world, to leave the judgment up to him and to leave judgment uh, to, for them to be shamed. We might think that this is crazy, and I think this is really beautiful. Think about who is writing this. It's the Apostle Peter. Do you remember his story? He is the prime example of the person in the Bible who let people be big and Jesus be small. The, the one who was all talk. You have to suffer and die, Jesus. I'll never let that happen to you. People are coming to take you, Jesus. I, I will stand in their way. I will stick by your side to the end. I'll die with you. I'll die for you. I'll never deny you. But he was the one who denied Jesus three times. The first time, because he was scared of a servant girl. The second, because he was scared of being reviled. The third, because he was scared that maybe they would come after him like they did Jesus. Peter gets this. And we need to remember that Peter understands why we shouldn't be concerned, because he's made these mistakes before. He's lived it. He's denied Christ three times. He's seen his heart issue. In fact, Jesus points out his heart issue at the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus says to him, hey, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yeah, of course, I love you. And then Jesus says it again, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, of course I love you, Jesus. No, 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 Peter, do you love me? Because Jesus was showing him his heart issue that he had placed people bigger than Jesus. He's so aware of how easy it is to not stand up for your faith. He knows how, how, firsthand how important it is for Christians to be set apart for Jesus and to put, them, put Jesus as Lord, to make him holy in our hearts. So we need to reorder our hearts 
so that Jesus is big and so that people and our culture is small. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Amen.